Thank you for joining us for Opportunity Makers. Notch was founded by two immigrants, and ahead of National Immigrants Day, we wanted to showcase and profile storytellers and leaders across different sectors and industries to prove that immigrants, by and large, are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers. Today, we have Leah Sharif with us, who is the Vice President of Marketing and the Head of Global Brand at Qualcomm. Leah is a marketing executive with over 20 years of experience, both on the brand and on the agency side. She brings with her her entrepreneurial view, as well as her performing arts background, which offers her a unique perspective for highly creative and nonlinear approaches. I am so excited to be joined today by one of the most fabulous immigrants I know. Um, I think when I first met her, we instantly connected um, about our respective accents. I don't know if I should call them Eastern European accents, but I think that's relatively fair. Um, And then we found out there were so many other things we had in common, including obviously the passion for storytelling, data-driven storytelling, etc. So super excited to welcome Leah. Hi, Leah. How are you? Hi, Anda. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. It's it's the end of a long week, and I was just thinking about um, actually my parents visiting and wanting to be able to go back and visit them myself. And I know I was talking to you about how much it meant to me to have them here after my wedding. So yeah, I think I'm just a little bit sad that I can't go. I can't go see them. By the way, how's that been for you? I know you have a lot of family. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and and how it's been for you since COVID, because I would love to to hear. Uh, so, uh, well, first of all, I'm really happy to hear that your parents are here and that- uh, they, were. they left. They left, so that's why you're sad. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry about them leaving. I hope that all of this clears up soon and you can go back and see your family. Uh, for us, um, I grew up in Azerbaijan. It's a former Soviet Republic. And uh, a lot of people uh, always say, what, where? So it's, a, it's in the former Soviet Union. It's a country in Caucasus on, uh, on, in the border of uh, Armenia and Georgia. It's a three beautiful, very, very old countries. They're thousands of years old, have a lot of history, have a lot of culture and interest there. So that's where I come from. And uh, when we left in 1989, um, I'll when we get to the immigration story, we can talk more about it. But your question was, who is left behind? Yeah, um, I'm half Azeri and half Georgian. So my mother's side is in Georgia. I have most of my mother's family uh, still in Georgia. But my immediate family, we all left um, uh, from Baku, Azerbaijan, in, in 89. Uh, my father passed away after we left. But my immediate family is all here in America. Oh, okay, so that's good. But you still go back, right? Because I remember... Yeah, I, I go back to Georgia most of the time, and we had trip plans, speaking of COVID, in May. My husband and I were going to go and spend some time there and go to Azerbaijan after many, many years. I haven't been there. And all of that had to be canceled. So that was that was really a sad event, very disappointing. Um, so it did definitely impact uh, our plans for travel. Tell us, I guess, a little bit about the the coming to America story. Um, Did you go from Azerbaijan straight to America or were there stops in between? Yeah, so we are uh, probably the last wave of of immigrants at the time when Soviet Union was just breaking up. So I, I left and then several months later, the wall came down. So if you think about 
the the last wave of people who looked to the West and and wanted better life, I would consider my generation being that generation from Soviet Union. Soviet Union collapsed months after we left, and uh, everything has changed. So the change has been so dramatic, I, I don't even recognize what's going on there anymore. And so the way we left, um, I was married at a time, my ex-husband's family was Jewish, and this was a big wave of Jews, Jewish emigration in the late 80s. I mean, Jewish people were oppressed and, and much oppressed in um, Soviet Union. So that's known. Uh, and so when we left, we actually had a very difficult immigration path. We had to go through, it was kind of a tried immigration path from Soviet Union for uh, Jewish immigrants. Um, I also have Jewish blood, by the way, as well, as part yeah. of, my, of my DNA. Um, so we, yeah, I, I have a lot going on. Um, and so when we traveled, we had to go through, at the time, Austria and Italy. And so basically you turn in your passports, you say goodbye to your country, your family, and you know you can never return. And that was before the Soviet Union collapsed. So basically I was saying goodbye forever to my friends, to my family, to my mother, to my father, knowing that I may not see them in a long time, knowing that um, I may be able to bring them to America, I may not be able to. I was really, really young. Um, and so, but with a lot of dreams and, and we always look to the West to really find a better life. We have been living in a country that's been ruled by communism. It was oppressed. Uh, there was no freedom of speech, freedom of religion. My mother, my mother uh, was a journalist and uh, wrote for a newspaper at the time, very prominent one. And my father was a PhD scientist. And so we had really interesting family with a lot of intellectual discussions going on and, and knowledge that we are limited as to what our opportunities are. And as much as I loved my country and my background and my, my, my family, I always knew, I think probably from the time I was nine, that I have to leave and I have to go elsewhere to find freedom and opportunity, not only as an immigrant, but as a, as a human being. So we left, we went through Austria, we went through uh, Italy, they hold you there for months. You live in, 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 in housing projects, immigrant housing yep. projects. It's not very attractive. All of a sudden you lose your culture, you lose your family, your upbringing, and you end up in these projects as, as just another person being counted to move through the system. The system is very complex. Finally, you get your permission. It takes months. I was pregnant at the time, too, so my immigration was also a, a, a pregnancy I had to or, uh, go through. And so when we landed in America, we, we came to New York, and um, we, we had a very typical kind of former Soviet Russian immigrant story. We branded in Brooklyn. We rented a house. My ex-husband drove a cab. I was, uh, I didn't speak English. I, I was watching soap operas to learn English. Um, all of those things. And I was uh, a really young mother. So my daughter was born in Brooklyn two months after we arrived. Um, one thing I forgot to mention is that I had uh, my first education and profession was in dance. I was a professional Russian ballerina trained to, 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 to work. Um, I was in a dance company. I traveled two years before we immigrated. So I came to America as, as a professional dancer, first and foremost, with the discipline and uh, ambition to realize my dreams. So it was really nice because 
instead of working at McDonald's as most uh, immigrants start or driving a cab or whatever the stereotype may be um, and dreaming to go back to school, I started teaching dance. I, I taught ballet and uh, people hired me and paid me well because I had an amazing ballet background. And so I was teaching ballet to kids in San Diego at the time I moved here to be with my sister. And so that's kind of the beginning of my story um, here. Wow. In the nutshell. I, I have realized just now that I didn't know a lot about you. Uh, I can't believe you were a professional ballerina. Um, it's, it's incredible. I, I don't know if I told you, I used to be a professional ballroom dancer. Did I tell you no, that? You never told me that. <laughs> How could that be that? We never talked about that. I know, it's crazy. But it's, it's also so stereotypical of Eastern European immigrants. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. But you know what? The dance discipline, the, the love and passion for dance. I was trained for nine years in school, six days a week. 8 a.m. through 5 p.m. I was either at the bar training in ballet or going doing my academics. Yep. And so, again, you know, the discipline, the knowledge of how to achieve something. I would say that dance and dance training uh, and discipline of dance and uh, the flow of, and the way of thinking that you, you acquire as a dancer, actually, in the training, um, helped me become who I am today. So I would, I would, I would assign you, a lot of that to that training. You still dance on your own? Yeah, in my kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, yep. kitchens are great for dancing. I don't know why everyone dances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't dance professionally anymore. I don't even dance uh, for myself, kind of don't take classes anymore for the last six, seven years. I have been previously. Um, I miss that a lot. Yeah, same. It's actually on my to-do list post-COVID is to start to start taking dance classes again. Um, but yeah, that's amazing. So, okay, wait, I want to ask you so many questions. First of all, tell me a little bit about that moment when you thought you were saying goodbye to everyone and everything you knew. Um, do you remember it? Like, is it, is it, you know, in your mind? Because my moment was very similar and I remember every detail. I remember everything I said and everything that was said to me. I would love to hear a little bit more about that moment and how now I'm going to start crying because you're going into like this emotive place. Absolutely. Well, we're not filming it, so it's okay. But you know what? There's a, there's a trauma that, that comes along with immigration and most people don't realize that until very much later in life because you kind of buttoned up, button up and you take everything, all of your energy and all your adrenaline, all your endorphins and you focus on your goal. So you immigrate. But what happens afterwards is this uncovering the trauma of, of, of living, leaving behind everything you know yep. and who you are. And so I absolutely remember saying goodbyes. I remember the airport. I remember people standing and waving to me. And I remember friends and family and walking into unknown, like forever. You know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Things changed, so I knew I could come back. But at the time when I was leaving, it was a communist country, and if you immigrate and if you leave, you cannot return. So essentially, you cut ties mentally and um, and physically with everything you know. But the the desire to leave was so powerful, and knowledge that you know that youth is a very powerful platform. You yeah. you have no fear. So youth there was hope, right? You have youth, you have hope, you have energy, you have ambition, and you're going into unknown. 
And so I remember that goodbye. I remember a lot of goodbyes and traveling to Georgia, saying goodbye to my grandmother, who I've never seen after that. She passed away. So like all those things, they accumulate over time. But definitely that moment was very powerful and stayed with me. You know, the other thing, I mean, I'm, I'm really going to make you cry now, but the other thing that um, I, I still struggle with is the guilt of leaving everyone behind. And the, the most important one, I think it's the time lost. Um, and you were talking about your grandmother. I think for me, my grandmother passed um, a couple of years ago and I still struggle with the guilt of all the time that I could have spent with her. And mm -hmm. the fact that I didn't get to live through some of life's most important moments with her and with my family. Um, and yeah, I, and I still don't know how to reconcile that. Uh, right. I'm curious, how, how, how do you think about it? Yeah, I think, I mean, just being, you know, Eastern European and Euro-Asian, as I called myself, you know, <laughs> right. long, people ask me, well, what race are you? You're brown or whatever you are. It's really like in America. Like, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I'm all skin. I'm Euro-Asian. I have this mix. I'm, you know, close to Europe. I'm close to Asia. We're from Azerbaijan. Like, that's who I am. I mean, people like still like, okay. Um, the question was guilt. All right. So there's guilt um, over different things. I, I felt hopeful that I can get my family out. So I felt less guilt initially. And I felt that I am the, the, the pioneer that is going to build that bridge. Uh, the responsibility of first immigration immigrants is, is tremendous. You know, for us, it wasn't, you know, I'm going to school. It was, I'm leaving my country and I'm leaving my, my roots and hopefully I'll bring everybody else later with me. But I was just so young. Um, I don't know if I experienced guilt necessarily at the time. It was more uh, sadness. The mm -hmm. sadness of not being able to be in both places at the same time, seeing my family. So there was a lot of loss afterwards. My father passed away six months after I left. So I never seen my father. Then my, my grandmother passed away two years after I left. And I've never seen my grandmother. So the, the sadness and loss and the grief is what followed me. Um, then I did bring my mother. And so that was just sort of like, okay, now we have all my close family with us. And so that that helped with the guilt part. I, um, I understand that. And I don't, because, you know, I, I think I was a lot more fortunate. It still felt like I was going to give up everything I knew, but I did come for school. It was, you know, and it was an open world and the, the, the obviously communism had, had fallen and so on and so forth. But, um, I think this COVID is the first time that I genuinely feel trapped. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just so interesting and it adds a completely new dimension to the immigration piece because right. we were all living in this world where it was like, oh, okay, like I can go see my family in 12 hours, I'll be there. So anyway, one of the things that I really, I really wanted to ask you about is, is identity mm -hmm. and in particular how, like what was the evolution of who you were when you left, who you were when you got here and who you've become and, and the tension between everything right. needed to be here to be accepted and so on versus who you actually were. Would yeah, love your thoughts on that. Really important question. And I actually 
I was hoping you're going to ask me about this and then you just asked. So we're, we're <laughs> aligned. I don't remember your list of questions actually. So identity. Now looking back, it's been 32 years. Let's just be clear where we are from that time. Long time, right? 32 years is a lifetime. So I've been in America longer than I've been in the Soviet Union now. So I flipped. At one point, it was years counting from the time you leave. And now it's years counting to be here. And that feels like a, an old dream. Identity for me, and I'm curious if you share that or maybe not, it was all about survival. And so when you're going into survival mode as a very young immigrant, single mother, I had to, I went through divorce within two years. So I, I landed with no money, no language by myself with a child. So the identity and, and a dancer, right? And then wanting to go to school, all these ambitions, the identity shifted from carrying what I brought with me to adapting and uh, trying to become uh, 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 sort of the American and yeah. that is a difficult part because you you want to be like them. You 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 assimilate. You start belonging. You become you know more accepted. You don't want to. You know that people see you as an outsider. You have an accent. You speak poor 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 language. You have to go back to school. You have to learn from the start. You have to become here. So I think that was the time where I kind of gave up my identity or pushed it away. Right. And then there, there has been sort of years of establishing. And establishing is when you're more comfortable, you're on your two feet. I started establishing myself in business. I started establishing myself in, 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 in my career and my profession and my personal life. Just so much was going on. It was just a whirlwind. Um, and then you flip to realizing how important your background and your roots are. And that's what happened in the last 10 years where I slowly begun to recognize the value of who I am at the very core. And who I am at the very core is this person, this person that came from Azerbaijan, from Caucasus, from speaking Russian, having an accent, um, bringing a new perspective, bringing a different perspective, a woman, um, a brown woman, all those things that, you know, bring, I come with me, I think I can it's a gift. And so that's why I am who I am. And so all of a sudden I'm yearning to, to be speaking about my identity, to be proud of my identity and having that, that pride realized. So these are the, the, the phases of identity. And of course there were smaller pieces to that. Um, but I feel, I feel very different today than when I arrived in terms of identifying and blending my roots with who I am today. And I, I see it as essential and more and more essential to who I am. So I brought back my roots. I feel like I'm now identifying and I'm firmly on the ground, an immigrant and an American, a woman and, and a successful woman, an Azeri woman and Georgian woman, you know, part, Jew, part Jewish woman, like all those parts I want to find more about. The survival is such an interesting point you make there because I think you very quickly realize that you have no safety net and if you want to survive, you have to assimilate. And that there's a very particular feeling that I remember walking around 
California, the Bay Area, and just looking around and feeling so foreign. I mean, everything. It was, I don't know if you grew up this way, but my mom was like, you have to wear heels, you have to wear a dress for dinner, you put earrings on. Like, it was just such a different culture from the, you know, flip-flops, I can roll in my pajamas, like sort of <laughs> California culture. And I remember just walking around and being mortified and thinking, how can I just wash, like just rinse all these principles that were so beaten into me, like books on my head and like the dancing. And it was, it was crazy to feel like I had to give all of that up in order to survive. And the other weird thing is I did so much to survive. And especially afterwards as an entrepreneur and dealing with my accident and so on, I did so much to survive that now I think the survival brain just is my comfort brain. And so I, I, even now when I should be in the stage of, you called it establishing and I maybe like a power stage of sorts, my brain still takes me to survival mode constantly. And I don't know if this happens for you at all. Maybe I'm just going through like stage two still or what yeah, it is. It happens. It happens? Yeah, of course, because there's a fear of failing. And so as, as yeah. a first generation immigrant, for me, I was so responsible for people. I had I had the pressure of giving my daughter the best life she can have. Is yep. this why I come here? What is my purpose? Right. Is my purpose to, to make her life uh, in America and my life and build something? my mother's life and uh, all of them dependent on me. And so I, I often go to survival mode today because, but I'm, I'm doing it with a lot, with the knowledge that my roots are amazing. Yeah. I do it yeah. With the yeah. That my identity is the mixed brown Nazari minority who is an American who has so much to give and so much um, knowledge to share with other women or other minorities or other immigrants. So I, I, I have, now I have much more comfort and confidence around this, but I'm still in survival mode like you. Yeah, I get it. I think it's the, the, the brain patterns are the same, but we now know that what makes us um, who we are is, is where we came from. Um, you know, you once mentioned to me that um, Sex and the City was your favorite TV show. <laughs> I used to be. <laughs> used to be one of, one, one of them sure. you know what's funny is i i started watching it during covid and i never watched it before and um i loved it i mean it was it's in some ways it's dated in some ways it's completely accurate to this day um but but i found myself watching these women and thinking i cannot relate at all like i never had that life nor will i ever have that life i know and, but also just wanting to have that life and wanting to have that identity so bad. And I wonder how, how did, when did you watch it and how did you okay, so look I'll at the Why I probably mentioned it to you in what context. So first of all, I love fashion. Like I love design and fashion. That's one of my passions, art, design and fashion. Right. And so that was a component in the show that was brought out, you know, the, the cosmopolitan New York. And I love New York. You know, I don't live in New York, but when I go to New York, I am happy. I am in my element. I have culture. I have theater. I have fashion. I have all these moments that I can relate to and love. That was part of the show. The second part of the show that I lived, not in New York, is being a single woman and dating and doing all of those things while I had a child. So not, not like them. 
But I was a single woman dating for years. I had all of those elements in my life that I had to balance out. You know, yeah. I was a divorced woman. And so that was years and years. I, I remarried six years ago. But until then, between my first marriage and my second marriage, I was a, a woman in relationships or, or dating as, you know, some failed, some succeeded, some were fantastic, some were horrible. I could relate to that part. So that's probably where the context of the show um, uh, might have been. So between New York, single women going through their trials and tribulations, failures in a really good sense of humor. So it's just one of the shows I found very well written and directed about this particular part of, of women's lives and fashion. I love that. And I also love the partnership between these women and the way they understand each other and support each yeah. other. I think that's friendship. Exactly. It was, a, it was a very, um, uh, it was an interesting turning point, I think, uh, for, for women throughout the world when that show came out. And I hope it made us all feel like we can be different, but also support each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, a good point. Follow up question, you know, to you, cause I'm interested, you're, you're now an American citizen, right? Oh, I've been. I've got my citizenship five years, I believe, is you allowed after you come in with a green card. There's like a number of years. I applied immediately and I got my citizenship. I wasn't waiting for anything. That's what I wanted. Yeah. So do you identify as American today? Well, I guess I want to understand more a little bit as to what that means, right? Identifying as an American, because there's so many definitions floating around of being American. I identified as this is my my native place today. That's that's where I live. This I have streets I love. I have people I love. I acquired friends. Uh, I have amazing friendships that uh, I've gained. I have amazing women in my life who are friends. One of them, you know, meeting someone like you. I have colleagues. I have a career. I have a great family. My husband. My my uh, uh, daughters. All of those things are part of living here. When I'm asked if I'm identifying as an American, yes, that's that's what America is. America is all about mix of people, mix identities, diversity. And if it's recognized in the right way, it's the most powerful country you can be in. So I guess in that sense, I do identify as American. So something I'm, I'm passionate about, and obviously this is why, partially why we're doing the series is, I think immigrants are often seen as either just not real Americans or seen even more specifically as opportunity takers versus opportunity makers. And what I think is really important is to to talk about what it means to be American in different, the different facets of that um, identity, but also what does it mean for America, for us immigrants to continue coming here and continue assimilating versus not. And I, 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 I mentioned this because, and I want to raise awareness around this because it's really hard to hire immigrants. Um, I don't know if, I don't know how much you know about the, the immigrant visas. I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of immigrant friends, but I'm still on a visa. Um, I still haven't, haven't been able to apply for a green card. And when we want to hire an immigrant to notch, it automatically costs 10 to 15 K just to process paperwork and apply for visas. And so people don't do it. They don't do it as much. And I think it's such a missed opportunity because we do bring so much diversity, even though it might not be as visible. Um, So anyway, just wanted you to share your thoughts on that. Um, Okay. So 
this is complicated because I personally, and, and, and everything I share comes from, from my point of view, I personally sure. never experienced that people view immigrants as opportunity takers. I, I experienced amazing opportunities given to me. And I experienced mentorship. I experienced Americans who saw talent in me and recognized it. I experienced um, advantage as being an intelligent, educated woman with an accent. So I, 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 this is a flip side of being disadvantaged when you come because you have to assimilate. But I also experienced that with my, it's my personal story, <clears throat> my nonlinear thinking, the way I moved through the, through the, the growth and career path. I've been presented with amazing opportunities in America and America gave me what I think I came here to find is ability to do it, whatever it is I, I, I wished for. It was up to me. Yes. Did I have obstacles? Did I have amazing survival to overcome? Did I have drama and sadness and trauma? Ton of it all along the way. But I don't want to focus on that because I feel like I'm a, I'm a story of success, right? If you look at my story, it's a story of of a successful immigrant who came here with nothing and built everything. So that's kind of how I see myself. Now, I'm not familiar so much about those. You, you are an entrepreneur, you running your own business. I, I actually am not as aware of the struggle of hiring immigrants and you just brought it up to my attention. It, it, it is newer, right? This is a newer struggle. It's the last four years that America is dealing with this identity crisis and it's of its own. And immigrants, immigration has become a bigger topic, a bigger challenge, a bigger, bigger political controversy. And all yep. those things, I think, are newer. And by the time I become successful, I, I wasn't dealing with that problem anymore. I'm fully accepted here. I'm fully you know, assimilated. I'm a citizen. I'm an American. I live uh, comfortably now. Um, but now I'm recognizing what you're bringing up. And I think the newer air, I feel like it will change again. I feel like we're going to go back to America that is embracive of immigrants soon. I'm very hopeful. I, I hope that this is a blip. We're going I, I, you know, blip. I, I will use this opportunity because I know this is going to be in the podcast. So I'll use this opportunity to just share a couple of insights around that because I not only want you to know, because I know that you're going to do something about it, but I want everyone else to know. Um, even during the Obama administration and even before that, um, the, the main visa that typically gets handed over to immigrants, especially immigrants who came here for school and then, you know, decide to stay, is called an H-1B visa, which is a work visa. And that visa has a cap on it. So um, there's only so many people who can get that visa and there's um, all sorts of percentages and probabilities depending on what country you're from and what company is applying on your behalf and so on. Even if someone already has an H-1B visa, if we hired someone today, we would still have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to transfer their permission to work over to our company. And then if you apply for a green card for that person, it costs another like 10 to 15, sometimes even more to actually get them a green card. So what happens because of that is not only are immigrants not hired um, because the companies don't wanna spend money, they would rather go hire someone who doesn't cost, but also immigrants when they do get hired, get paid less. And so across the board, they're sort of punished for the fact that um, they basically can't switch jobs easily. 
Mm. Um, and as such, they're just getting paid less. And so I've, I've always believed, not always, but since I started employing people, that it should be some type of quota, a diversity quota that deals with hiring immigrants and committing to uh, creating opportunities for these people because they will in turn create opportunities for others. Yeah. And so a lot of the logic and story behind the series is to feature people who not only grabbed the opportunities that were handed to them, but offered a lot of opportunity to others. And so on that note, I would love to hear a little bit about, about your team and all the partners. Obviously, you, you create so much opportunity all around you. And, you know, I'm lucky to be a part of that group. But I want to hear about the LIA ecosystem and how you're kind of passing this on to, to others as well. Yeah, um, well... I I remember being in the in the conversation at a conference, and I was um, one of the speakers. And uh, I think that I have a powerful story to share and a gift to give to other women, even though they may, they don't have to be immigrants; they can be uh, anyone. Um, one uh, big issue in America for women is walking in the room with the old men. Or, or and, and feeling like they have to shrink, right? Because yep. that, that has been what was put on them. This sort of, you know, uh, uh, need to fight to to be equal. Yep. And so one area where I'm really spending a lot of time and sharing when I'm asked or when people want to know more is how do I feel when I walk in the room with, with all men? And how, how does it play out for me? Has I felt over the course of the last 30 years where I would feel um, lesser than them in the room? Probably. But I never felt that I could not become the equal. I mean, I, I, I felt like I have the power, I have the, the abilities, talent, and knowledge where I can actually prove that women can be simply just equal and powerful and confident with just who they are. And so what I, the woman asked me, what should I do? I feel like I shrink when I walk in the room. I, I just said, you're powerful just by being a woman. You know, that is in a good way. You, your power is to, to bring that perspective to the table. So you need to feel that power rather than feeling like you are uh, inferior in that environment. So that's one area where I'm, helping other ecosystems. I have friends of all uh, makeups and uh, all from all the places. They're either native, you know, from America, born and raised here. They're Latinas. They are uh, African-Americans. You know, um, obviously, I have such a mix. And so my team at Qualcomm, just to mention, is very diverse. You know, I, I believe that diversity is what makes our thinking the strongest. And a diverse doesn't mean not being white. Diverse means diverse. It's all parts, right? It's a gestalt or gestalt concept of, mm. you know, bringing the parts together, multiplies it by, by, by extending it and making ideation and creativity so much stronger. So I promote diversity. I, prim- I, I promote ideas. I believe in strong ideas. I'm no longer afraid to speak up and people say, oh, well, you're really strong or you're intimidating or whatever that means. I don't even know what that means anymore. I have an opinion. I believe in the room. That opinion should be known. 
If it's the wrong opinion, I'm happy to change it. So I share those thoughts with my team. I grow team. I mentor people. I am always available to women and men because I think the more men start understanding women, the better the ecosystem turns. So hopefully that's helpful. I love that. I I always joke with my girlfriends about, um, you know, we complain about, oh, metabolism after you turn 30, I'm sure, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. We just, and then I kind of look back and I think, honestly, it's only gotten so much better with age and also with surrounding myself with other powerful women like yourself, because it's, it's not about, um, it's not about how you look. It's not about how you sound or how well uh, researched your idea is. It's really just about how much you believe in yourself. And the thing that does happen with age and with great friends is you just start realizing you, you become less tolerant to bullshit and you start realizing right. that you are worth it and that you, your ideas are worth it. And you just put them out a lot more. I love that thought that you just brought up. I want to just expand on that. I choose, I choose who I spend my time with now uh, very carefully. I choose where I put my energy to very carefully. I recognize how important it is to, to fulfill yourself, to surround yourself with integrity, love, passion, creativity. And you can only do that if you surround yourself with environments that don't drain you. Yep. Because if you're drained, you can't give back. So you have to fill and you, you, know, you have to do what you love. You have to be with people who f- fulfill and you have to help others. And that kind of exchange draws the energy of growth. And so very selective as to where I spend my time. So yeah, I choose you. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I was going to say that that's a, you know, in a really meta way, that basically means that by being here and sharing your story, you're empowering me, you know, fellow immigrant who I'm still trying to, you know, make my way in the world. And hopefully by having others listen to this, they can not only hear your story, but also see you doing this yeah. and continue to do it themselves. So I, I really, really, really appreciate all of what you have done in general for me, but also in particular this conversation. And I want to thank you for, for oh, just opening up. It's a partnership. I, don't, I feel like it's, it's natural and organic. And I, before I was very modest about telling my story. I, I, hide, I hid it. Now I don't hide it anymore. I feel like it can help people see another perspective of either being an immigrant or being a minority or being a woman or whatever that is for them. Um, And I'm very grateful for you. And I'm, I'm really impressed with the growth and what you've been doing at, at your stage in life. It's unbelievable. I mean, you're a powerhouse and you have so much to give to other women. So I'm really glad to participate and support um, this conversation. Join us again next time for another episode of Opportunity Makers, where we profile amazing immigrants, hear their personal story, and talk about the opportunities they've created in their career. 